Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, if you're a guest with us today, we're taking a little detour from our normal practice, which is preaching from one of the beautiful, potent, powerful, disturbing scriptures that we read from the lectionary. Um, and to, uh, through Lent, we are taking a little tour of the seven deadly sins. And this week, we're talking about the sin of greed. And I've been aware this week, as I've been pondering and thinking and reflecting on my own life and heart, Jesus' stories and the scriptures, of an intense desire, perhaps more than usual today, for me to be free and for us to be free. I'm not sure that we will um, run across a vice or sin um, during this time that has more a stranglehold on us and the air that we breathe and the way that we're taught to see the world than greed. That uh, great saint, Bill Maher, said, one place that God shouldn't be is on money. One is a supreme, all-powerful entity Americans worship above all else. The other is God. In Luke chapter 12, the scriptures tell us that someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to the crowd, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what am I going to do? I have no place to store all my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many, many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. So Jesus was teaching a crowd, and this one guy comes up to him, seemingly, at least the, story, the way the story goes, out of the blue, and says, Jesus, I need your help here. I need you to have us help me to divvy up this family inheritance in a way that's more profitable for me. There must be more going on in the story. I mean, Jesus must have perceived something here. There has to be some more information, because Jesus' immediate reply is, no, I'm not participating in that in any way. Who do you think I am? And he turns to the crowd around him and he says, watch out. 
for every kind of greed. Because a person's life is not defined by an abundance of possessions. According to Jesus, apparently we have to be on guard of greed. If that was true in the first century, how much more true is that today? Greed doesn't casually enter our sphere. It doesn't just hang around the peripheral. Greed, it seems, seeps in from every crack and every corner. From media that constantly reminds us of what we don't have. From an economic system insisting that making more money is always better. The point of it all, even. From the pace of our culture, encouraging us to be purely consumers, grabbing, grabbing, more, more, never enjoying, never seeing ourselves as caretakers, just consumers. Greed tempts us into the seductive belief that having more, achieving more, is necessary if our life is ever going to be meaningful if we're ever going to be secure, if our life is ever going to be whole. Greed, like each of the seven vices, distorts the reality of the world. It distorts, it distorts our love. It distorts our humanity. It blinds us from the reality that we need God because we think we're doing pretty well on our own. It fuels our deluded notions that we can secure what we most want on, on our own, if we even know what we really most want. And while greed is most often associated with this clamoring for more money and all the stuff that money provides, greed shows up in all kinds of ways. Jesus says to be on guard against all kinds of greed. We might be greedy for power, Greedy for prominence. Greedy for a reputation. Greedy for security. Greedy for comfort. Greedy for relationships. Greedy for knowledge. Greedy to have others see us as the expert. Greedy with our personal time. Greedy with our privacy. Greedy with ourself. With each of these, we're tempted to believe that whatever, whatever it was that we were clutching after, whatever we're attempting to amass, whatever we're trying to pull and suck toward ourselves, whatever we're trying to hoard, we believe that that is what determines our life, that that is what is necessary if we are to truly live. The old word for greed was avarice. And it means to crave. It's this insatiable craving. The message puts it this way. Protect yourself against greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. And here is the danger for many of us. We have a lot. And so the temptation to believe that life is found in that lot is very potent. 
And this is greed's grave danger. It seduces us to believe that we can provide for ourselves what we truly want. That if we're really going to be happy, if we're really going to nail that, that we have to exert ourselves pursuing our unbounded desires. Our life depends on it. And from this unmoored place, we'll discover that greed is never satisfied. Now, we misunderstand it here, and I have to pause and say, the answer here is not to reject, and certainly worse, to hate our desires. The scriptures often speak in ways that are intended to stir up our desires, to want to crave God and God's blessings and the abundance and feasting and joys of God's world, of the good life that God's given us, life with other people, the pleasures of the world that are true and gifts from God. Greed does not reveal the evilness of desire, but rather greed reveals the destructiveness that's leveled by immature and flimsy desires. Unbridled, underdeveloped, Small, myopic, selfish. Greed doesn't really know what it wants. It never knows how much it wants. It just wants. I've probably only known one, like truly known as a friend, one like fabulously, immensely wealthy person in my life. And in many ways, he was a good man, and in his own ways, he was generous. But I remember one time my dad asking him, so uh, just curious, like how much, you know, how much would, would you feel like would be enough? And he wasn't asking us in any accuse, he was just generally curious because he was working really hard. He had an, a massively successful business that was known all throughout the Midwest. And my dad asked him, so how much would be enough? And I remember him just chuckling and saying, you know, uh, there's no answer to that question. It's just a little bit more. And this man was kind and generous in many ways, but there is a memory I have from all the times I'm I was around him that his, his world felt really small to me. We don't do ourselves well to tackle greed or any vice by simply trying to chop away at desire. That's a deeply inhuman posture in opposition to the generous God of creation and abundance. However, in greed's vicious grip, we don't really know what we want. We just want. Wanting for wanting's sake. Wanting as a desperate, frantic attempt to fill ourselves, make ourselves whole. Wanting without any thought to the content of what we're wanting, to how it's connected to God or God's good world, to how it's beautiful, to how to share it with others. Estranged from that liberating desire to enjoy the goodness of God's lavish kindness, greed shrivels our heart, collapses our imagination. We never experience that surge of life that comes from sharing our joy and our pleasure with others. So the truth is that greed can actually be our friend. Whenever we feel its grip, we can take it as a cue. 
Not that our desires are too powerful, but rather that our desires are too atrophied. They're too small. C.S. Lewis once said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now the truth is though that drink and sex and even a rightly ordered kind of ambition, these things can be good too, but when they're separated from the ultimate good, all they do is ruin. All they do is wreck. So whenever we encounter greed's pull, we can stop, we can dig a little deeper, we can begin to ask ourselves what it is we're really wanting. Apparently the disciples were kind of confused by this. So Jesus told them a little story. And the story was of this man who was a wealthy farmer, apparently had pretty large barns, had a bumper crop. And once he had this bumper crop, his, his big barns couldn't hold all that he had anymore. So he decided what he would do is tear down the big barns and make much bigger barns. And once he had those much bigger barns, he could stuff them to the gill, and then he could sit back and he could say, man, you are set. You have locked this thing in. Endless pleasure is yours for the rest of your days. Kick back in the lazy boy. Enjoy your bonbons. Life is good. He probably didn't have bonbons, but you know what I mean. God shows up. God calls him a fool. And God says, your life is going to be required from you tonight. And all this stuff is not going to be yours any longer. This foolish, deluded rich man believed that by hoarding all of his abundance, his life would have been full, as full as his barns. The problem wasn't his decision to build bigger barns, but his misguided belief about what bigger barns and larger crops would bring. He was grabbing the wrong things. His abundance did not draw him to God. It did not draw him to gratitude. It did not draw him to generosity. It did not move him toward justice for those who didn't have what he had. It just made him small and ultimately, in Jesus' words, foolish. Greed distorts our desires. It distorts our wanting. It makes us settle for the mirage. The opposite of greed is moving toward generosity and justice. It is wanting for others what you have for yourself. It is wanting the plenty that you know to be extended so that everyone around has plenty. It moves us toward gratitude. The sense you get from this rich man is probably that he would have had a hard time ever actually enjoying what he did have. He would have just been constantly stuffing it in his face. Greed constricts us and closes us off and cuts us off from true abundance. It keeps us from being rich toward God, rich in God's life. Richard Rohr 
had this uh, wonderful reflection this week that Miska pointed me to. The cold person lives from a place of scarcity, invariably protecting and defending what little they think they have or are. A person in the flow of God's love neither protects nor guards their inner source, vitality, or emotions any more than necessary to maintain a needed sense of identity. You can tell when someone is in the flow of love, when they trust that their very life is given freely. You often can even see it in their smile. The natural flow of creative and generative love is largely impossible when we are sucking in, when we are stingy, petty, blaming, angry, playing the victim. When we're recounting what people did to us or what they did not do for us, we're pulling back and sucking in. We need to notice when we're in this constrictive state right away before it takes hold of us. People often ask me how long they should pray. And I say, as long as it takes you to get to yes. Greed is one of the powerful ways that we say no. It's one of the ways that we keep our fist tight around what we have. Because we're really, really afraid that if we let loose, if we actually trust God, if we actually give our energy and our heart and our resources away, that we won't have enough. The message of the kingdom of God is there is always enough. Aquinas said there's two reasons why we struggle with greed. He said one is because we think we own it. We actually think we own it. The biblical message is that we are, the old word is stewards. We, we really don't own things. We have things, we enjoy things, we are grateful for things, and we use them for the good of others. And the second reason is fear. I, I think, at least for me, I don't want to overlay my experience onto you, but I think fear plays a massive role in greed. We are really afraid that our life is going to run out of control. We're really afraid that we're not going to have what we need. That we're not going to have what we want. That we're not going to have it now. We're not going to have it in retirement. We're not going to have it between here and there. And driven by fear, our fists are tight. And I think freedom looks like this. I think freedom looks like letting loose. So each week we're, we're giving two practices, or a, a practice, and this week we have two. The first is an expression of gratitude. The odd thing about greed is we think it's this insatiable sense of pleasure, but I think it's exactly the opposite. I think we actually don't experience pleasure really at all because things are gone because there's no gratitude. We don't truly receive them. Perhaps this will land for you. If you think that greed might be a place that you struggle with, and I'm going to say 
a lot of us here, okay? Find one deeply true thing that you desire. And this is going to require some work. A deeply true thing that you desire. And enjoy it with immense gratitude. Take that thing, receive it as a gift from your God who loves you and blesses you and wants goodness for you. Don't demand more of it. Don't worry that it might not be there tomorrow. Enjoy it and thank God for it. And the second one is one you might expect. Sometimes the things are the simplest, right? If you want to counteract greed, practice generosity. If there's one thing I, there's probably about four, but if there's one thing I really want for our church, it's for us to be a generous community. Because I think there is something about generosity that reflects the kingdom of God that is so countercultural to the ethos of our day that I think the gospel is calling us to a kind of brave and courageous radical generosity, and it will scare the living daylights out of us if we move in that direction. And I want to be very practical. It means giving our resources. It means giving our emotional energy to people around us. It means not holding ourselves back from relationship, not holding ourselves back from God, and it means giving our dollars. Now, there's something I have almost never talked about at our church because um, it's, a, it's a part of my normal practice, but I almost never talk about it because of my background, because of how my theology over the last 25 years has shifted, and because of my fear of being misunderstood. So I'm going to blow past all that, <laughs> and I'm going to trust y'all, hopefully to trust me, and know that this is not said in a heavy-handed way, because I don't feel that at all. But I just want to tell you a little bit about my practice of tithing. I have a friend, I won't give his name, he's now a pastor in another city, and you know, sometimes when pastors get together, you have these theological conversations that probably only pastors have, and this one happened to be around money and giving. And I don't believe, and uh, all of our elders don't share this, but I don't personally believe that a 10% giving is a, an absolute law requirement from God. But I practice it. I've always practiced it. My parents taught me that. This other pastor friend, he absolutely believed it was a requirement. And if you didn't do that, you were sinning. And as we're uh, having this conversation, at some point my friend turns to me and goes, you know, this is the weirdest conversation in the world. You don't believe in tithing, and you do it. I do believe in tithing, and I don't do it. <laughs> and I told him, and this is why I'm telling you the story. It's not, you know, to declare my tithing. As I really believe this, I said, you might think this sounds noble, and I'll be honest with you, it, there's nothing noble about it. I know my heart. Left to my own devices, I'm a greedy dude. For me, this practice of hands-off, there's a minimum percentage, and it just goes to generosity, 
to God's work in the world, to my community, that, that act has been one of the most freeing things for me in the last 30 years of my life. Now, you might say, I can't do that. Well, then don't. <laughs> but do what you can. And if I could encourage you and challenge you, I would say, do something that does require some level of trust. Do something that requires you in some, in some way to take your hands off and say, this is not just what I can manage. Now, I'm also aware that we have people from all kinds of places. And some of us are in very real financial hardships. This is not a law. <laughs> it's an invitation to generosity. And all of us can find places to be generous in our life. All of us can find ways to unleash this, this tight grip that we have. I think we need practical and concrete ways to release our grip. Because we can talk all the time about trusting God with our life, but until we actually have to trust God with our life, it's kind of academic. So perhaps one or other or both of these practices will fill God's invitation to you. To find some, some place in your life, some deep, good desire that God is meeting for you and receive it with joy and thankfulness. Perhaps there's some place in your life where you need to open yourself up to new kinds of generosity. And if it really, if when you hear those words, this may be another point of wisdom, it, maybe, maybe not. If you hear those words and it feels like a heavy place of guilt or shame, this is probably not the practice for you. If it feels just a little bit scary, it probably is. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.